Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, We have two panelists on the show today. It is a pledge show, so we have some a little bit less time to talk. And um, so we wanted to give more time to uh, two women who I realized, uh, we didn't do this intentionally because it's a pledge show, but I realized when I was thinking about the show, are charter members of the Political Rewind team of analysts. Professor Audrey Haynes from the University of Georgia, political science professor, and Professor Andre Gillespie from Emory, were the first two political scientists that we invited to do the show almost eight years ago now. And they are still with us, and I'm so glad they are. So let me introduce them individually. First, uh, uh, Andre Gillespie, professor of political science at Emory University and director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference. Thanks for being here again today, as you have been on so many occasions over almost eight years. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here every time. We're going to get you your pin very soon. (laughs) (laughs) Audrey Haynes, professor of political science. And is your title director of the Applied Politics Program at UGA? Is there an actual title for the work you do? There is. Mm. There is a there is a title and there's a pay bump, which is even more important. So (laughs) is it director? I want to make sure I get it right. it is director. It is director. But I'm I'm happy if you okay. call me anything, Bill. So, but not anything. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you for being here as well, uh, Audrey Haynes. All right. Let's start with a story that um, is getting an, an enormous amount of attention. Yesterday, uh, CDC uh, released a study of gun violence in the United States, and the headlines are uh, uh, pretty alarming. Uh, CDC reports that in 2020, the big year, first year of the pandemic, guns were used in 79% of all homicides, the highest rate in more than 25 years. The rate of firearms used in homicides increased that year by 35% across the country, um, and guns use in suicide was, guns were used in 53% of suicides. Uh, CDC also reports that um, uh, these statistics are more dramatic in um, communities with higher rates of poverty, um, underserved communities. So I want to talk about that for just a few minutes, if we can. And, And of course, we need to put it in the context of the fact that all this comes just weeks after the governor signed the law which will uh, expand gun rights in the state even more, allowing people to carry concealed weapons without a permit. So, um, Andre Gillespie, give us your thoughts just in general about what these statistics tell you, especially in the context of the more liberal laws that Georgia has in place. Well, unfortunately, I don't think the report of this data is actually going to change anything in terms of our gun debate or even in terms of our messaging on crime during this time period. I don't think anybody is surprised uh, by the increase in gun violence. Uh, we see it. We feel it 
um, you know, in terms of uh, our perceptions of increased crime just on the streets generally. Um, and the idea of sort of what proportions of these crimes use guns, I don't think shocks us. Um, you know, we think about this in terms of our comparisons to other industrialized countries that are certainly not crime free, but don't have this level of crime because people don't have access to guns and, uh, you know, maybe sort of have the same tendencies because we're all human to make bad decisions. But if you don't have access to certain types of weapons, maybe it gives you, buys you a little bit extra time to not make bad decisions or to not inflict as much damage with them. But I think we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean that it's easier to get a gun in some communities than it is to get access to a good calculus class in high school um, or uh, access to fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, and this is why this is a public health issue. Um, and maybe that will get us to start to think about this differently. I think in the gun debate, there are some people who are like, well, if there are that many guns out there, I gotta pack mine in order to make sure that I can protect me and mine. Um, but that might be a, a very, very different approach. And I would encourage people to think more broadly beyond that, behind that. And I think the suicide numbers are also things that are very telling as well. The idea that not only have we seen an increase in gun violence, but we've also seen an increase in suicide um, sort of reflects this mental health crisis. And if you want to stop people, you can't, you're not going to be able to stop everybody, but sometimes for some people, maybe not having the gun so readily available might give them enough time to be able to get help or to have people be able to intervene to prevent them from making such a deadly decision. Audrey, yeah, to pick up on, on one element, just one element of what uh, Andra said, uh, you know, when Governor Kemp signed this uh what they call constitutional carry law. Uh, he talked about just what Andres said. Uh, it's more and more dangerous out there. We're having more, there's more and more uh, uh, potential violence in the streets. This law is important, uh, expanding gun rights. So I, go ahead, Audrey. Well, let me just say that, um, you know, we've seen a lot of shift in terms of how uh, we debate this issue. We've gone from lobby groups talking about gun control to talking about gun violence and trying to reduce gun violence in general. And I would argue in relation to uh, what you, you just pointed out, that there have been studies forever that have talked about the underlying um, causes of gun violence. And they range from income inequality and poverty, and as Andra mentioned, access to things like decent schools and affordable housing, and just this notion of a lack of opportunity. And most of these gun crimes are focused in areas that are poor and where you're lacking social mobility. So this notion that, you know, by increasing the, the access to guns is actually going to do anything to solve the problem, you know, um, that is not likely to be a solution. And a solution is more in terms of what we've talked about, a public health issue and a very complex one. I'd also argue that the public's perceptions about crimes, and this is something that, you know, I can add to the conversation, you know, does have a lot to do with, um, you know, what they see and what they think, whether it's coming from politicians and whether it's coming from the media as well. So a few studies have shown that when it comes to coverage of gun crimes, the media tends to focus on the no novelty, you know, and that novelty often does not talk about the real victims of gun crimes and where they're located, but victims who traditionally are not the victims, you know, often people who are not poor, who are, you know, uh, not of a, of a minority um, uh, or marginalized group. Um, and that 
you know, raises concerns. And, and again, this is used politically. So, you know, most of the uh, narratives in coverage are driven by, you know, victim characteristics and, and often not very realistic. And the other thing, too, they're often focused on fatalities um, when often uh, outside of those suicides that we talk about, most gun violence um, you know, has something like a 16 to 20 percent fatality rate. A lot of people are shot and they rush to the hospital. Most people think that the worst gun violence that happens most frequently are mass shootings. And that has an impact on the laws that are actually raised. So, you know, okay. looking at it in reality, looking at the studies that exist, maybe we could produce some actual policy that will change it as opposed to just raise money in our emails. So here's what I mean. Look, Democrats and Republicans buy guns. We know that. And guns theoretically are and, and the uh, ability to easy, have easy access to them theoretically is part of the culture wars that we've seen for a long time. And yet um, it is not one of those hot button issues, uh, Andre, that's likely to play much of a role, I would argue, unless I, and you'll tell me if I'm wrong, in in candidates uh, for uh, office this year, it just doesn't seem that it's going to rise uh, to the level of certainly not the abortion debate. Is it really something that can motivate people? Uh, be one of the motivating factors to get people to the polls, Andra? You know, uh, by itself, maybe not right now, and I say this not knowing what's going to happen in the future. So if there is a major gun violence event, like all bets are off when it comes to this. Um, I think that guns are part of a regular kind of triumvirate of, 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 of cultural issues that I think do uh, activate and motivate uh, Republican voters. It's the type of thing that people use all the time to get you angry. So I don't think it's the top one this year. I think abortion is going to be uh, top uh, race, gender, and sexuality issues, uh, you know, I think are, are, are also more salient right now than gun issues are, but gun issues aren't absent um, from the debate and from the issues. And, and so, and we see that in terms of the ways that Republican candidates um, nod to gun issues. They say it as one of their issues among many um, during the time period. And you'd be hard pressed to find a Republican candidate who would be like, I'm pro gun control, um, even some of the common sense hmm. measures. So yeah, I think it's salient. I don't think it's the most salient um, in this election cycle. Uh, we remember back in 2014 when Jason Carter ran as a Democratic nominee for governor, he supported gun rights. And Democrats have since that election had to reset a little bit in terms of how they talk about guns. All right. I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, today is one of our few pledge shows uh, this spring, uh, but we need to do it. When we tell you we're listener-supported radio and we're a listener-supported show, I mean, that's the truth. We are. We need your support to keep Political Rewind on the air five days a week, twice a day, bringing you what we hope you think are honest, straightforward, smart conversations about politics. Here's how you can help us if you haven't done so already. Audrey Haynes and Andre Gillespie join us for today's Political Rewind. Audrey, uh, we know that the United States Senate Democrats uh, called for a vote yesterday to codify uh, the right to choose into federal law. And of course, we knew that going in, they didn't have the votes. They knew they didn't have the votes uh, to pass it, but they wanted to set a marker to say to voters out there, if you support the right of 
choice for uh, uh, women, uh, then uh, you need to elect Democrats uh, moving forward. And let me bring it home to uh, Georgia to get the conversation started. Uh, first with you, Audrey. New York Times' Maya King wrote this piece uh, uh, in the aftermath of the vote. Democrats are painting a future with limited abortion access as a Republican-manufactured problem underlined by the Senate's failure to advance a bill to codify the terms of Roe v. Wade. Georgia Republicans have made the issue their latest line of attack, focusing their fire on freshman Senator Raphael Warnock, a Democrat and self-proclaimed pro-choice pastor. And uh, Republican, the Republican National Committee called uh, Raphael Warnock, called him out, said his vote was, quote, disgusting. His vote proves that there is no limit to how far he will go to support Joe Biden's radical agenda. Uh, the students, Susan B. Anthony anti-abortion group called him an extremist. And they said they're visiting hundreds of thousands of Georgia voters to educate them about Warnock's record and ensure he's held accountable on election night. So, Audrey, yesterday's vote, the the setup for a major political fight across the country, but certainly in Georgia. Well, it will be. And one of the things that stands out about um, uh, Senator Warnock is that he is very, um, very able to convey uh, the way he thinks and interprets this issue. I've heard him talk about it. Um, and, you know, he I think he will be able to push back and explain. Um, and, you know, the bottom line is the the lines are drawn. You know, there are people who will support him and those who won't. And then there's a small group in the middle who are perhaps persuadable either way. So we'll see. But this does I mean, the Democratic Party. Uh, took on this vote, and if anyone took the time to actually read the the legislation, it it was um, it was uh, probably more expansive, a little bit beyond what one would consider maintaining the status quo of Roe v. Wade and and the subsequent legislation and uh, court cases that have come out after that. You know, so in some ways, someone might say, well, you know, they didn't really take the opportunity to really legislate um, and you know, put something forth that some of the more moderate Republican voters, I mean, not voters, senators would have signed on to. And there is a narrower uh, piece of legislation out there um, that, you know, might see the light of day or it might not. Republicans are in a very tricky situation because a lot of them probably are a bit unsettled by this notion that there are going to be states that will fully ban abortion, even when a woman's life is in danger, even under circumstances of rape or incest. But they're really not talking about that because it is an election year cycle. And that's really having a very sad, sad effect on the state of of representation in this country. Andra? So um, ultimately, I was having a really interesting discussion with my president and provost uh, this weekend kind of about like where will Republicans overreach on this bill? And, and I think part of it is the rape incest life of the mother exception. But also there are the parts of Roe that actually allow for reproductive choice in ways that don't have to do with terminating a pregnancy. I remember when I read this for the first time as a college student in a constitutional law class, I was like, oh, we can't have one child limits like they have in China at the time, you know, in the 1990s, as, as I was thinking about this. Um, you can't, you know, tell somebody you can't have your 15th child, even though it might look like, you know, nutty and insane to other to other people to, to, to go about doing that. 
you can't restrict IVF and other types of, of treatments to for infertility. Um, and I think some of the issues that are going to come up in some of these states that are sort of having the pendulum shift, and they really aren't having the pendulum shift, but that are going full hog, we're going to ban everything, is that there are these gray areas and places where it looks like it's banning stuff that actually pro-life people, most pro-life people don't have a problem with. So most pro-life people don't have a problem with contraception. Um, they don't have a problem with, uh, you know, uh, IVF. Um, and so the idea that people have kind of gone in the other direction might actually stem a backlash um, later on. And it's not all just tied into terminating a pregnancy. But to get back to how this affects uh, Senator Warnock, um, I see this just as a revival of the theological attack that didn't work against him in the 2020 cycle. Kelly Loeffler basically was trying to portray Warnock as not the Christian that you think he is by tying him to Jeremiah Wright. She just did it in a, a particularly racist way that didn't work um, all that well. So by tying it to issues of race, she was trying to undermine him. Now, uh, I anticipate that the Republican Party and if Herschel Walker is the nominee, they are going to bring up this pro-life pastor thing, as we've seen it already in the debate, as a way to try to um, undermine him doctrinally. I think the issue is uh, who are who are the persuadable people here who would be moved by that statement? I think a lot of these folks are Republicans already and weren't going to vote for Raphael Warnock because he was a Democrat. Uh, mm -hmm. But there's just this larger idea that they are now going to have a doctrinal fight to try to question his religious integrity, his integrity, his sincerity um, to Christ and sort of whether or not he is putting kind of mammon before God in, in, in uh, this interesting way. So I just this is just another theological debate that I'm going to be fascinated to watch unfold over the course of this cycle. And of course, Audrey, we also are going to see this play out in the gubernatorial race uh, uh, between uh, Stacey Abrams, who has made it clear that choice is now going to be one of the most important issues in her campaign. Healthcare already was access to healthcare. So this, as I've said on the show any number of times now, is an expansion of that. Um, and we're going to have uh, either a Brian Kemp or a David Perdue who have adamantly uh, opposed uh, allowing choice in Georgia. Uh, Purdue would go so far as to ban it outright. We haven't heard Kemp say that he'd go quite that far, but he certainly signed the fetal heartbeat law, which is a virtual uh, uh, ban, if not an exact one. Well, I would venture a guess that in uh, the Kemp camp, you know, the, the tendency of Kemp is to be very conservative, yet, I mean, I'm not sure that they would go so far as to say that they would ban abortion, a medical procedure in all instances, especially in cases of incest or when the life of the mother is in danger. And I agree with Andra. I mean, there is a potential backlash. When states do pass these, you know, very draconian uh, abortion bans, which some of them have potential triggers to go back to that. I mean, there's a wide range of potential outcomes. The cases that are going to come up, the lawsuits that are come up, the news coverage that's going to be generated were cases where people can't get fertility treatment or they can't, you know, they're just going to go through a whole slew of either backtracking or, or cases where they're going to peel off voters. And, and this is the potential. So with Kemp, he has to be careful about that. You know, he'll be running a statewide um, uh, election campaign. And, you know, people are very secretive about how they're voting. I would say... Um, there are women who are in the Republican Party that 
again, not all of them belong to, um, you know, a, a certain viewpoint when it comes to abortion. And those are people that, um, you know, he needs those voters. And, and he doesn't want voters to stay at home, and especially those suburban women who might be affected by this, who may be thinking, you know, um, you know, really seriously about the, the inability that in a life or death situation, the government is choosing death for them. Andre, the justices get together for the first time today since this opinion was leaked. You'd love to be a fly on the wall for that uh, meeting. But Politico reported yesterday, and they certainly have got a track into the court, that uh, based on what they've been hearing, uh, no justice has changed his or her mind on how they plan uh, to vote, which means Roe likely would be overturned, even if they some of the uh, wording in Alito's uh, draft is softened just a bit. Well, I mean, I'd love to be a fly on the wall, but I don't like this leak. And so I would want to keep my mouth shut about it. Um, and I kind of wish Politico would keep their mouth shut about this. I understand the need to want to scoop. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you know, I think that it is uh, it is impinging on the ability of the court to be able to make decisions according to the law um, in ways that are not particularly helpful to the institution long term. Um, that said, uh, I, you know, I, I, you know, I, we see what Politico is saying. I expect that it's going to be six weeks uh, before we actually see the final uh, opinion in this case. And of course, we're all going to take what the, the February opinion and the final June opinion and compare them side by side to see what's changed and what hasn't changed in it. I, I, I am prepared for nothing to change. I'm also prepared for a lot to change. We'll see. And so, um, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't know if I care as much about sort of what they're saying is inside baseball. I'm just going to wait for the final outcome. I, I, I hear that, and and I think that the point that you make is really important, and I, I suspect you would agree with this, Audrey. This leak really more than ever throws the Supreme Court in the middle of a political minefield, and that's really we've seen them move toward more and more political. Uh, uh, decision making uh, in in the last really since 2000 uh, uh, the presidential decision, but but this really puts them in the middle of a partisan fight, and the leak uh, just exacerbates that. So that makes sense to me, Audrey. Real quick, do you think that's true? That is true. I mean, the court has always been susceptible to to some degree to politics. That is just the nature of the beast. But very often they've they at least to some extent have have um, attempted to stay out of that area. And, and we've seen John Roberts do that, you know, visibly in some of his decisions that he's made on the court, that he's lost the ability to really do that to some extent outside of being a persuasive chief justice, because now that the uh, court has changed um, with the additions of these new justices, it is very conservative. So um, okay. we shall see. I, I, okay, um, I got to get to our final break of the show. Uh, here again is how you can help GPB Radio and Political Rewind. Under Gillespie, we continue to look at uh, early voting data to uh, see how uh, who's turning out and um, for which party. We the the appetite for voting early continues to be extraordinary. Uh, we've had like uh, almost two hundred ninety-three thousand people cast early ballots which is 223% higher than the same time 
four years ago. But it also continues to be true that 58 percent of the people taking ballots are taking Republican ballots, 42 percent taking Democratic ballots. Now, we know we have contested races at the top of the Republican ballot and don't with Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock on their side. But my question at this moment is, how do you think this affects Democrats running in down-ballot races? So even a Lucy McBath and a Carolyn Bordeaux up in the 7th District, uh, candidates for Secretary of State, for Attorney General, where we have Democratic competition, what's your suspicion about how lower turnout affects those races? Well, it, it just makes the individual turnout efforts of the candidates in those races all the more important. So when you have this smaller field, it's actually something that candidates can actually manage a little bit and campaigns can manage a little bit better. So their job becomes, let's see, OK, what's the threshold that we're going to need to make a runoff? And they're going to have to be runoffs in these races, given the number of candidates in the field. I don't see anybody who was a runaway kind of smash hit in the same way that Herschel Walker appears to be. Um you know, what, what's it going to take to make it into the top two? You set your turnout uh, goal towards that, and then you try to go find voters and bank them uh, by canvassing them, getting them to commit, and then following up to make sure that they actually cast their ballots. And you can monitor uh, whether or not they're doing that using the, 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 uh, the voter file. So I expect that there's going to be a lot of that. Um, you know, one of the things that maybe dogs some of the uh, sort of down ticket of uh, Democratic candidates is, these are very well-qualified candidates. These are people that we've heard about before, uh, but nobody, uh, they, they all have to do a really good job of making sure that they find voters uh, to appeal to statewide. So there isn't anybody who you would look at as sort of being a very clear front runner going into this race. And so I think because of that, not many people have strong preferences one way or the other who gets it. Um, and, and as a result of that, they don't necessarily feel as compelled to show up to vote because some of them, I think, will be yeah. satisfied with any of these candidates. There really Either, aren't these yeah. big contrasts um, in the field. That makes sense. Um, Audrey, I'll add another race, uh, although it's not statewide. It's 13th District, where Democrat David Scott is facing a number of challengers. And there are people who uh, think that Scott ought to be vulnerable uh, for the first time in a long time. Uh, because of some concerns about uh, the work he's been doing in Washington on the Ag Committee and the like. So weigh in on this from your point of view, all of it. Well, a couple of things. You know, I think um, David Scott has actually been in the target view of ambitious politicians for a while. And so that's really not expected. And, you know, um, people, when they're looking for a, a seat to run in, they look at people who might be vulnerable and, and they you know, try and figure out where they have a chance of winning. So that's all very strategic. Um, I would also uh, make some um, some uh, assessments about this early voting. Um, from, you know, the perspective, I was looking at some of the data on Georgia votes earlier this morning, and it is interesting to see that a large number of those voters are elderly people um, that are coming in. That was, a, if you look at the significant breakdown by by age, um, boy, 65 plus really has a huge number uh, of individuals who um, are, are voting across the board. Like I think it was somewhere 60 percent. Yes. 60 and so, you know, percent. Part of that is like, you know, uh, those people who are more likely to turn out to vote, but, you know, women are voting at higher rates than men. And you know, I would agree with some of the things um, that Andra just said. 
the Republican primaries are competitive, controversial, and interesting. And that drives people to vote. There is nothing more um, that will get people out to vote than the notion that my vote may count a little bit more because this is close or this is controversial. You know, um, I would also argue that there is some crossover voting this year. I've been polling uh, my friends. I, I had access to some potential internal polls that were suggesting that crossover is over 10 percent in early voting, which, you know, that's pretty significant. Like, uh, crossover voting is not something that generally happens, and very often in states it's driven by local races. I think in this case it's not driven by local races. It's driven by people who are concerned about the quality of candidate uh, running in some of these elections, particularly those who are Trump door specifically, and they're trying to have an impact on their choice in the general election, sort of uh, minimizing the risk of a candidate with uh, very uh, little experience and perhaps someone who is willing to toe the line and uh, lie about election outcomes being in charge of elections. So, you know, that's one of the things. I think there's a lot of controversy. I think Democrats, as Andra said, probably are not concerned about who's going to win the primary in their case, although there are some local elections that may be a bit more competitive. Andra? You know, one of the things that is actually really interesting to note is to see how people are taking to early voting. And so I, I think even though it's been around for a while, I think we're still in the early enough phase where we're looking at, is this something that's taking on for convenience? Um, I think we have to view 2020 through the lens of COVID, and we see this increase that's there out of necessity. Um, and I, I'm still trying to figure out what the equilibrium is and what we should expect normal uh, voter turnout to be. But the fact that we have seen people pulling Republican ballots, feeling very comfortable doing that, and uh, people who we typically think of as being Republican constituents being very comfortable doing early voting. Uh, the fact that we know that there are prominent Republicans who have cast early votes. So the fact that Patricia Murphy, like last week, did a ride along with, with Marjorie Taylor Greene and saw her <laughs> casting her ballot early, right? That is, in a subtle way, should be a reminder about all of the attacks that Donald Trump levied against, uh, you know, not just absentee voting, but early voting as well, have gone out of the window. And Republicans are remembering that they used to do well with early votes uh, and that it makes sense to not discourage people from actually taking advantage of this. Yeah. Um, by the way, Sam Burmistrage just sent me a note uh, pointing out that uh, as of uh, the, the latest figures, which include all of yesterday, the percentage of early votes has gone up to like 235 percent higher than in 2018. Um, OK, so let's move on and talk again about uh, the war within the Republican Party right now between the Trumpers and the uh, not so Trumpies. That's, I think, the best way uh, to say that. Um, we know that three Republican governors are coming to campaign for Brian Kemp as the uh, race moves towards the final day of voting, May 24th. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, Arizona Governor uh, Doug Ducey, and Nebraska Governor Pete uh, Ricketts. Uh, Donald Trump uh, issued a statement about this yesterday. Here's what he said. Today, the worst election integrity governor in the country, Brian Kemp, loaded the great state of Georgia up with rhinos. They weren't coming today. He's got that wrong. It's soon. That's right. He had them all, Chris Christie, Doug Ducey, 
uh, Pete Ricketts. That tells you all you need to know about what you're getting in Georgia, just a continuation of bad elections and a real rhino if you vote for Brian Kemp. But what makes this particularly interesting is that um, Chris Christie fired back at uh, Trump in a pretty significant way. Um, he essentially said this. He, well, here's exactly what he said. Insightful commentary from Trump about three Republican governors who were overwhelmingly reelected from a former president who lost to Joe Biden. Maybe the R in Rhino, he said, uh, Chris Christie said, Audrey, really stands for reelected. <laughs> Maybe it does. Um, and in this case, one of um, I would uh, Chris Christie is the one to enter the battle because, you know, he has a reputation for, you know, rarely parsing words. And there have been times where he has you know, defended the president early on, but plenty of times where he has, um, you know, made a, a comment that was uh, very honest, forthright and well crafted. Um, whether it uh, has the impact of moving people or not, I'm not sure. But it is interesting to see Kemp basically overperforming what people expected and and Purdue seriously underperforming. And, you know, one of the things I would offer is that one of the reasons that we see Kemp doing well and Purdue not doing as well is like from all the indicators, one, Purdue is not seeming as, you know, authentic. Remember when that was a criticism of Casey Cagle on on the stump, saying things that, mm. you know, in your in your back of your mind, you know, oh, is he only saying that because he has to right now and he doesn't believe it? And also the fact that they're not raising money, he's not investing his own money. People read those as signals that, you know, it's not likely that he's going to win, even though they did generate that um that memo suggesting that some of this early voting was going to be in their favor. And it was driven by, you know, Trump supporters who don't have any, um, you know, uh, 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 they have concerns about absentee voting. So they're all showing up in early voting and having an effect. And these are his people. And so that's an indicator. And that may have been floated so that perhaps they get a little bit more support. But um, the fact that Governor Kemp in the state of Georgia um, is getting three really well-known uh, uh, governors coming to his aid is a big deal. It says something about the state of Georgia and the, the, the nature of the battle that is going on right now in the Republican Party. But I would note, too, Kemp is also very conservative, and a lot of conservatives out there know that about him. He delivered on a lot of his policy promises to Republican voters, um, so that may be one of the reasons he's overperforming as well. So let uh, Andra go ahead. You know, I mean, I think a couple of things here. I'm like, does you see a rhino really? I mean, it's the same thing. Brian Kemp is not a rhino, so it doesn't matter how many times Donald Trump says it. People know these guys, and this is not true. Um, and so, like, you know, I, we have to take this with a grain of salt. I, you know, I, 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 I'm hating the horse race um, with the primaries every Tuesday and Wednesday because it's just the tally of which endorsements, like, you know, which endorsed candidates win versus which endorsed candidates don't win. I can't deal with data points that are like, you know, one or two or five at a time. I want to pay attention and we're going to look at it sort of over the course of the whole primary election cycle. And then I'm also going to go back years and also look at what the patterns are. But, you know, one of the things that I think part of the reason why Ducey and, and, and Christie and, and Rickett don't mind coming back to this is they there there's now some, you know, scant evidence that suggests that when people had political resources to bear that predate Donald Trump, 
they those resources actually come to their benefit at, um, on election day. Incumbency matters. Incumbency matters more than endorsements do in this particular instance. And so these guys are feeling froggy enough to be able to kind of stand up to the president in this regard. I mean, something they should have done years before, but you know, it's just a reminder of of, of the fact that like these were real politicians, and they're still going to be real politicians uh, even after Donald Trump is gone. So we're, we're almost out of time, but I want to just ask, I, I think you're so right. Watching on Wednesdays to see whether the Trump candidate won or lost, the day, it, it, it really does feel, I mean, it's an exercise in some kind of futility in a way. That said, Andra, Georgia might be a little different, yes? We now have, he's added yet another candidate to his essentially Trump ticket, Jake Evans up in the 6th District. You are going to be watching Georgia as a sign of Trump's power, aren't you? Well, I'm certainly going to be doing that, but I'm not going to be looking at individual races. I'm going to look at sort of like what the overall kind of results look like. And then we're going to be factoring in what are the individual factors of these races that are actually probably stronger predictors of vote choice than just whether or not Donald Trump endorsed them. Andre Gillespie, we are out of time for today's Political Rewind. Thank you so much uh, for being here. Audrey Haynes, you know, I love talking to the two of you. And I'm glad, even though we were in a pledge show, to have, to have just the two of you and get to hear more of your voices really was terrific for me. And I'm sure our listeners agree. We are out of time for uh, today's show. Of course, we're back with another Political Rewind tomorrow. By the way, you might want to put uh, something else on your radar next Monday. Uh, we're going to do an hour with David Gergen, uh, who is one of the most interesting uh, uh, political insiders in the country, an advisor to four presidents of the United States. He has a new book out. We're really looking forward to the conversation with David on Monday. But we'll be back tomorrow. Until then, um, we're going to send you back to our team that can tell you how you can help support Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy.